This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Please have your Bibles. Please open them to the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 88. Psalm chapter 88. If you're new to the Bible, you can find the book of Psalm by pretty much just open up right to the middle. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love to be able to give one to you. So you can just go ahead and raise your hand up in the air. Don't feel bad doing that. We have, uh, want to give this out as a gift to you today. So if you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Um, thanks so much for doing that. Uh, we want to make sure everyone has a copy of the God's Word in front of them because we're going to hear some things so good this morning. I want to make sure you know that it is not made up. We're going to find ourselves in Psalm 88 this morning, and we've started this year with a series we've been calling New Year, Same Gospel. New Year, Same Gospel. The Bible says that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, who He is and what He has done, the Bible tells us that it is the very power of God. The gospel is not just something we believe in order to become Christians. It is the very power of God that sustains our life as Christians. It is the spiritual water that our thirsty souls need to hear again and again and again. And so this morning, I'm going to close out our series by showing us the gospel as given to us in Psalm 88. Now, just to warn you, Psalm 88 is a psalm of lament. Lament meaning sadness and sorrow that is expressed to God. The old British preacher Charles Spurgeon called this psalm the darkest part of the Bible. And so why are we going here? Why are we going here, particularly on this Sunday, that as you just heard Pastor Caleb say, is our vision Sunday. We have set this Sunday aside to talk through and pray about what we believe God is calling our church into in the new year. And we're going to be doing that after our service. And so why why are we on a a Sunday where we're really trying to talk about vision? uh, Why are we prefacing that with a sermon that's honestly going to be talking about how to process despair? Well, we're, we're going here because as we come into the new year, we can have all these plans. And that's great. As the great philosopher of life, the boxer Mike Tyson, as he observed, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And I think if we're honest, we can admit that sometimes life punches us in the mouth. Sorrows can come as unexpected and unwelcomed guests interrupting our best laid plans and leading us into some very dark times. I've had some very dark times in my life, as I'm sure you have as well. My wife and I have lost two children to miscarriage. The joy of expecting new life dashed by death. I lost my father-in-law to a tragic accident several years ago. I've had friends as close as brothers who have walked away from the faith made a complete shipwreck of their lives. I've been publicly slandered and misrepresented and unfairly treated. And for the past 30 years, I've been battling a chronic illness called Crohn's disease that continues to rear its ugly head in unwanted ways. 
That's just my stuff. I'm sure you have your stuff this morning. Life can hit, and it can hit hard. As we come into this new year, I'm just burdened for us to know how the gospel functions. How we can still meet God even when we go through dark times. I'm eager for us to know this well so that our souls might be comforted. So that we might be a community that knows how to comfort one another. And so that we might be positioned to minister to the hurting neighbors that God has placed in our lives. We can all go through dark times. This psalm is about how to meet God in those kind of times. So I've told this morning's sermon, How to Meet God in Dark Times. How to meet God in dark times, let's turn our attention to God's word in Psalm 88. Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to the Mihlah, the Lenoth, a maskil of Helan, the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles. And my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abdurah? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayers come to you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word for the good of our souls and ultimately for the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen. You'll notice that this psalm is certainly full of a lot of sadness. It starts by saying that it is a maskil written by Heman the Ezrite, and he's a leader of a group known as the Sons of Korah. And I think we can easily brush past those subscripts, but they're actually part of inspired scripture. They're given to us by God for a reason. We may understand the context of the psalm that is written. You see, several hundred years before the psalm was written, there was a man named Korah. 
Korah tried to leave an uprising against God and God's anointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 16. Korah wanted, he wanted promise for himself, he wanted power for himself, and he tried to take it by force, and so he led a rebellion. Now his rebellion was put down and he was executed. And what would have been customary for that time would have been for all his sons to have been executed with him, for his whole entire line to be wiped out. Because you didn't want to execute a father and then have their son grow up and have him be able to avenge the death of his father. If you've seen the movie Black Panther, you know that that does not go over very well, right? You don't just kill this father, you want to kill the whole line. But that's not what happens. God commands Moses to sow mercy to the sons of Korah and to spare them. They actually become part of the Levite clan, which is a clan that is made up of the priesthood. So it's actually a really amazing story how God takes a family of rebels and makes them into his servants, because that's what his power and mercy can do. Side note, but what family tree you come from doesn't matter to God. He can rewrite your history. That's another sermon for another day. But that, that, that just gives some context, though, of the sons of Korah. They are priests who served primarily as songwriters. They sang songs that were going to be sung in the temple. And Heman was their leader. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 4 that he was famous for his wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible does not mean book knowledge nor street smarts. Wisdom is knowing how to apply God's word to the everyday stuff of life. And Heman was really good at it. And he wrote here for us a maskil. A maskil is a Hebrew participle of a verb that means to make one wise. Another translation would say to give understanding. And so this psalm that is so dark is coming from a very wise man who's sharing some of his wisdom but how we can meet God in the dark. I think the psalm really gives us three things that we can do when we find ourselves in those moments when darkness seems to be our only friend. Three things about how the gospel can comfort us in those times. First, we can be honest with God. Second, we can be confident in God. And third, we need to be in the community with people of God. How, how, do, we, how do we meet God in the dark? Be honest with God. Be confident in God and be in community with the people of God. So let's look at the first point here. Be honest with God. As Heman writes this psalm, he is clearly in distress. In verse 1, he says that he cries out to God day and night. He has a persistent sense of need that he wakes up with and he goes to bed with. It doesn't leave him. In verse 3, it says his soul is full of troubles. And his life draws near to Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew term for the realm of the dead. That taken with verse 15 where he says that he is afflicted and close to death from his youth up seems to indicate that he is in physical distress. He has some kind of chronic ailment that's threatening his life. And he's had it for quite some time. And not only is his suffering physical, but notice what verse 8 says. It says, you have caused my friend, companions to shun me. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. He's experiencing relational distress, abandonment. In his time of need, no one seems to be there. We're going to say actually later how that is not the case. But when you are going through dark times, it can be hard to see anyone else because all you're aware of is what you're going through. 
And so even if, if there are people around you trying to support you, it can be hard to see them. Pain often leaves us feeling very isolated and alone. And in the midst of his physical distress and relational isolation, it's having an effect on his spiritual life. Did you notice how many times he's saying, you've done this, God, you've done this, you've done this. Again and again and again, he's blaming God for what's going on in his life. And he questions God, why are you allowing this? Look at verse 10. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abdon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your right hand in the land of forgetfulness? Here's what he's saying. If I die, how can I give you praise? Here's what he's saying. God, I know you said you'll work all things out for good, but how could this possibly be any kind of good? You ever been there? You ever felt those things? I know I have. He's charging God. And he's not getting any answers from God. Verses 13 and 14. But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? He desperately wants to hear from God, but he feels nothing but a deafening silence from God. Feels like God is hiding from him. The Psalms were songs that were meant to be written to be sung. Something tells me this would not get a lot of playtime on positive encouraging Caleb. These are despairing words. And as we read these, I think it's very easy for us to begin to feel uncomfortable. Like, is this, this is a lot of honesty. Uh, uh, is, this, is this psalmist sinning by writing these things? I mean, shouldn't he be speaking about his love for God? Shouldn't he be speaking how God is good even though his circumstances are bad? To quote a scripture, shouldn't he be taking these depressive thoughts captive to Christ? Like, these, this can be our go-to as Christians. Like, we think sad thoughts, and we're like, okay, that's not right. So the Christian thing to do is to replace that with happy thoughts. So when I'm sad, let me count my blessings. When I'm angry at someone, let me just pull in love and forgive them. When I'm in pain, let me find some good out of it. Right? And those are all good things to do. But they jump over a very biblical step. If we want to take our thoughts captive to Christ, meaning if we want to learn how to think like Jesus thinks, well, how did Jesus think and feel and what did he say during his hour of distress? Was not Jesus, who on the night before he died, said that his soul was very sorrowful even unto death? Matthew chapter 26, verse 38. Was not Jesus who cried with such intensity that the blood vessels in his face burst and he sweated drops of blood, Luke chapter 22, verse 44. And was it not Jesus who cried out in despair on the cross, my God, my God, why are you forsaken? Mark chapter 15, verse 34. Godliness for Jesus did not mean keeping quiet about his agony. No, he lamented his suffering. Because part of how we experience God in the dark is being honest with God about how dark things are. For even a prayer of despair is still a prayer.
friends, you need to know that today. Even a prayer of despair is still a prayer. A prayer of despair is still an act of faith that the heavenly Father's ears are never closed to the cries of His children. This is what makes biblical lament different than just complaining. Complaining is just wallowing in how hard things are, how sad things are, how discouraging things are, how hopeless things are. Lamenting is being honest about those same things, but voicing that honestly to God. See, complaining takes us inward, lamenting takes us Godward. Mark Rograp, a pastor who wrote an excellent book that I would commend to you called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It's a book on biblical lament. He says this, Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Christians never complain just to complain. Instead, we bring our complaints to the Lord for the purpose of moving us towards Him. See, sometimes, friends, we can have nothing to say to God about how hard things are for us. And God would rather hear about our hard than not hear from us at all. Lamenting is being honest with God so that we might draw near to God even in, in the midst of our pain. Being silent is not a sign of spiritual maturity. No, it's a sign of unbelief that God doesn't actually care about what you're going through. Staying so stoically silent is false pride that you are too strong to be hurt. Listen, friends, we're on shaky ground when we're trying to be more godly than Jesus. That's probably not a good way to go. If Jesus could be honest about his pain, why do we think we can't be honest about ours? A few years ago, I walked into my kitchen and there was this terrible smell. It's never a good thing when you walk into a kitchen. I'm just like, man, what is that? So I go searching around and I find that underneath one of our area rugs, there was a rotten egg that had probably been there for a few days. Apparently one of my children, who I will not name to protect the guilty, had, had dropped an egg, and instead of telling their parents about it, they covered over it, thinking it will just go away. But as you know, if you cover over a mess, it only gets worse. Friends, God doesn't want us to cover over our mess because he knows it'll only get worse. God can heal us, but only if we acknowledge the realness of what has happened to us. I think so many Christians burn out from trauma because they never feel the freedom to actually be honest about how traumatized they've been. But that's what God invites us into. He invites us into honestly coming to him, not trying to be strong, but being clear about how weak and despairing we feel. So how are you doing, friend? When was the last time you were honest with God? But how are you doing? Part of how we meet God in the dark is by being honest with Him. And, second point, being confident in Him. We need to be honest with God. We need to be confident in God. On the face of it, this psalm doesn't seem to be filled with much confidence. Actually ends on no despair. It says, darkness is my companion. The psalmist has no confidence that God's going to change his circumstance. He's not like, hey, my life is dark, but I believe it's not going to stay that way. It's, it's not what he says. 
But in the midst of his despair, notice where he starts. Verse 1, he says, O Lord, God of my salvation. That phrase, God of my salvation, is rich with biblical history. It was first used by Moses after God delivered the Israelites from Egypt. God frees them from their oppressors and takes out their enemies. And in Exodus chapter 15, Moses says this, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. There's a woman named Hannah, many years later, who was being oppressed because she had no son to support her. And that was a shameful thing in that culture. And God looked down on her and had mercy on her. And he gave her a son. This is what she says in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Lord, salvation. When the evil king Saul tried to kill David, but God protected him and spared his life, David says this in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 47. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. I could go on, but the point is that by using this particular name for God, Lord of my salvation, what Haman is doing is he is recalling who God has already proven himself to be. You see, in the midst of his despair and darkness, although all around him seems bleak, he's looking back into history and what God has done already to prove that he is the Lord of salvation. And what God has done gives him confidence in what God will do for him. Notice, he does not just call God God the Lord of salvation. He says, the Lord of my salvation. Notice, he has not experienced salvation yet. He is still living in darkness. But as he considers who God has proven himself to be in the past, he anticipates that since God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, what God has done will be what God will do and will do for him. In other words, the God who brought salvation to others will be the God who brings salvation to him. And will be the God who brings salvation to us, friends. Listen, friends, when we read the Bible, we aren't just reading stories. We are seeing the revelation of God's character, who he is proving himself to be. And as you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, here's what's clear. He is the Lord of salvation. And he isn't going to change. He can't change. His perfections can never grow less. And so the God of Moses' salvation and the God of Hannah's provision and the God of David's deliverance, he's still the same God. And so he's not just the God of their salvation. Friend, he's the God of your salvation. And what you're going through, God is going to get you through. Because that's the kind of God He is. We're in times of darkness. We need the perspective of the past to give us confidence for our salvation in the future. When you're living in the hard now, don't just stay in your now, but look back at who God has proven Himself to be and let that build your anticipation of who God is going to continue to be for you. We can't allow our present pain to define our view of God. We need to allow the past record of God say who he truly is. Before this psalmist gives vent to all the way he feels, he starts not with his feelings, but with who God has revealed himself to be. 
See, our feelings need to be acknowledged. We can't hold them in. We need to be honest with God. But our feelings should not dictate to us what is true and isn't about God. His track record proves who he is. That doesn't mean that our feelings don't matter. No, feelings are important passengers to have sitting next to us in our car of life. Like we should talk to them, we should be aware of them, we should acknowledge their presence. Don't put your feelings in the trunk and lock them up because they will break their way out and try to kill you. Like it will not be a good thing to hold your feelings in. What you cover over will only get worse. We need to acknowledge our feelings. We need to have them with us. But please don't put them in the driver's seat. Don't let them have control. What needs to be in the driver's seat is not what we feel, but what God has proven to be true. That he's the God of salvation. And not just for Moses, and not just for Hannah, and not just for David, but ultimately, friends, he's proven this through Jesus. Jesus came to earth, friends. And darkness did become his only friend in. Became his only friend as he carried our sin on the cross. Jesus came to earth, and not only did he draw near to Sheol, but he went into death to experience the judgment that we deserve for our life of sin. Heman felt like God's wrath was on him. Jesus knew God's wrath was really on him. As the sky went black and the earth quaked, as God the Father judged God the Son for the sin of God's people. He was abandoned. He was shunned. God's hand did lay heavy on him. And he did go down into the darkness of sin and death. But he's the Lord of salvation. And so he didn't stay down. But after dying on Good Friday, he got up from the grave on Easter Sunday. Proving his victory over sin and death. And he arose with our salvation in his hand. And so, friend, when we feel discouraged, when we feel like giving up, when we feel the fatigue and grind of life taking its toll, and we are wondering, God, where are you and what are you doing? When we are all up in our feelings that we're all alone, friends, God is not a prisoner to our emotions. He is not defined by our feelings of discouragement or despair. And our inability to see God at work does not mean that he is not at work. Regardless of what we feel, here's what is true. He is the risen Savior who has an empty tomb to prove that he's the God of our salvation. And so for Christians, while we might get knocked down, we should not stay down. We should not stay down and accept an identity as victims. We should not stay down in our trauma and believe that we can never get past our triggers. We should not stay down in discouragement and depression and anger and bitterness and worry. We should not stay down in our hurts, down in whatever it is that's causing us to lament. No, we need to be honest about our feelings, but we don't stay down in our feelings. We can get back up with confidence in God because, friends, you serve a Savior who got back up from the grave. And because He got back up, we can get back up because his resurrected spirit now dwells in us and we stand not in our strength but in the strength of his might. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Friends, we might go through seasons of darkness but because Jesus got back up we can know that every season of darkness is just that. It is a season. Meaning it will come to an end. Friend, your suffering has been tagged with an expiration date 
by the resurrected, nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Who promises that one day, He will make all things new. And what we weep over now, on that day when all brokenness is turned into beauty, what now brings us sorrow, on that day will bring us praise. Because Jesus is yet to meet a hurt that He can't heal. He's yet to find a sorrow that he can't carry. He's yet to experience a regret that he can't redeem. There's a day coming, friends. There's a day coming when all will be made new. And it's coming as surely as Jesus rose from the grave. And so, friends, we can get back up because he got back up. And as the old hymn says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives. All fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living. Just because he lives. Now if you're anything like me. These things that can comfort us. I hope we feel comforted right now. These things that can comfort us can quickly also be forgotten by us. We can forget that we can be honest with God. And go back to stuffing down our feelings. We can forget that we need to be confident in God. Which is why there's one more thing that we need in order to meet God in the world. Quick point. It's an important point. We need to be in community with the people of God. We need to be in community with the people of God. He even talks in the psalm about feeling alone. He says, darkness is my only friend. Everyone's abandoned me. But that's not actually true, is it? Because while the psalm was written by humans, notice it's also called a song of the sons of so Helaman was the lead writer, but he wasn't the only one. He had some brothers with him, so they were helping him come to Jerusalem. He's right about how they were doing. They acted like brothers and sisters. They helped him come to Jerusalem. Oh, like you know, like I. I I would be feeling probably some type of way. Heman is pushing these people away. Nobody loves me. He's just wallowing in that. But notice, his friends don't go away. They still help him write this song. They press in. And they help him express his lament to God. I don't know if this song comes about if it was just Heman. The song comes about because it's also written by the sons of Korah. Sometimes, friends, if we want to draw near to God, we need other people in our life helping us write our song. We know that people in our life helping us learn that we can be honest with God. We know that people in our life helping us know that we can be confident in God. Friends, we need one another. We don't just need our personal relationship with Jesus. We need relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ who can encourage us in Jesus. We can never be as strong individually as we can be in community. I think about the story in Exodus chapter 17 when Israel's battling the nation of Elimelech and Moses is praying, and every time his arms outstretched in prayer, the Israelites are winning. Every time his arms fall down, they start losing. And so what happens? Aaron and her come and get on the other side of Moses, and they help him keep his arms up. And he was able to stay prayerful because he had two friends in his life that were faithful. They gave him a strength that he did not have in himself. That's what Christian community friends is meant to do for us. It gives us a strength to our faith. 
that we can never experience if it was just us and Jesus. In the 1940s, there was a pastor in Germany named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he wrote a book on Christian community called Life Together. To talk about a dark time, he was in Germany during Nazism. And in his book, he writes this, Every Christian needs his brother. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. And that clarifies the goal of all Christian community. They meet with one another as bringers of the message of salvation. See, Heman had some good friends who helped him voice his pain and ultimately helped him see the salvation of God. Friends, we need good friends. Well, here's the deal. Good friends are kind of like health insurance. You can't get health insurance when you're in hospital, can you? Like no insurance company wants to get close to that. You haven't paid into the plan so they don't want to pay out for you. You need insurance before you get sick so that when you get sick, it's there. If we want to have good friends around us, friends, who can encourage us and point us to God, we need to be investing in relationships even before we go through hard times. This is why I'm just so burdened so burdened that you'd be here consistently on Sunday. I'm so burdened that you'd be involved in the community group. That's why we talk in our church about kitchen table ministry, just having people in our homes and building deep and meaningful friendships with one another. Because in order to thrive in our relationship with Jesus, we need relationships with godly people who can encourage us in our relationship with Jesus, especially during seasons of darkness. I love you, Christ Church, with all my heart. There's nothing I want more for you than for you to know the fullness of joy that's in Christ. And so I'm burdened that in our culture of non-commitment and selfish individualism, that you would give yourself to the pursuit of relationships. That you would give yourself to knowing and being known by people here in this church. Relationships are not a microwave dinner that you can just cook up. And microwave dinners are never good. And eat a lot of them, they'll start causing all kinds of problems. Relationships are like slow-smoked brisket. Best done over a long period of time. So friends, just hear my heart for you. And I know that you, this is not correction. You guys do so deeply love each other. But as we come into a new year, Give yourself deeply to relationships. Give yourself deeply to being with godly people. Make, make that a New Year's resolution. So that when we inevitably go through hard times, you might already have people in place in your life who are able to be bringers of the message of salvation to your heart that you need to hear in that moment from them. As we come to a close, friends, we are a new year. We're in a new year, but we need the same gospel. We need the good news of Jesus that allows us to be honest with God, that calls for us to be confident in God, 
and makes us a community where we can point one another to God. Friends, this is how the gospel meets us in even the darkness of time. And so here, here's some vision for the new year. May we continue to be a community where hurting people are helped by Jesus. There's just something that marks us as a church. I pray it be something that marks us. We have a community where it's okay to not be okay. We believe the gospel is too strong for you to not stay okay. Hurting people can come and be honest about how they hurt. And they can be helped by the Savior who came to heal us from our hurts. May that be something that marks us. May we be a community that knows how to be honest. And is okay with people being honest. Maybe a community that encourages one another to be confident. Maybe a community that loves one another deeply with true affection in our hearts. May we be that kind of community for the good of our own souls, for the good of one another, and for the good of our neighbors who have yet to believe that we might be a light to them of the goodness and hope that is in Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray.